Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. This is part two of our conversation with Robert Plowman on whether there is anything we can really do to mold our kids. Now, in part one, our host Emil Sherman really teased out this question with Robert. So if you missed that, I encourage you to press pause and go back and have a listen, as it will contextualize some of the conversation you're about to hear. For everyone else, here's a quick refresher. It was always just assumed, reasonably enough, that nurture, that is systematic effects of family environment, is what makes us turn out the way we are. That's perfectly reasonable. But when we realize that parents and children are 50% genetically related, you begin to say, well, could it be that that similarity between what parents do and how children turn out could be mediated genetically? And we know parents and things run in families from body weight to mental illness, personality. And Robert and Emil get into a lot more depth around genetics. So I would encourage you to listen to that conversation. It is particularly fascinating. This is Principle of Charity on the Couch, where Lloyd gets personal with our expert guests and asks some edgy questions, so a different flavor. But before we get into the conversation, if you are looking for an intellectual night out on the town, why not join immersive journalist, psychonaut, and best-selling author Michael Pollan for an evening that will change the way you see food, drugs, and how the human and natural world intersect. Live on stage in May 2023 in a city near you, tickets are selling fast, so get in quick at thinkinc.org.au. Robert, thank you for that. I, I, it was fantastic listening to you and Emil have that conversation. The principle of charity is really an attempt to make sure that we understand the other and really focus on the, the steel version rather than the straw version of the other's argument. And so just following on from the conversation that you had with Emil, what would you believe the three strongest arguments are for the idea that parents can and should try to mold their children? I think for me, it has to start with the science, you know, and you have to ask for evidence for these things. So we talked about, for example, growth mindset. Mm. You do have to be cautious in just accepting environmental influences because we're sort of, I don't know if it's our culture or what, but it's just so easy to believe the environment has an effect. Mm. And so I think we need to guard against that and ask, where's the evidence? So I think parents can make a difference, as I said in talking to Emil. But the question is, to what extent do they make a difference? What is versus what could be? And 
Um, we didn't talk about the flip side of this is 1% of the population is diagnosed as schizophrenic in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I often get letters from parents saying, I did everything right. And then suddenly you get to the parent, the kids go off the rails in adolescence, for example, or if they became schizophrenic, the biggest supporters of genetic research are parents of schizophrenic kids, because up until a few decades ago, they would have been told it was what they did in the first few years of life that made the kids schizophrenic, which is, you know, really wicked when we know that uh, schizophrenia is one of the more heritable genetic disorders. So you can make a difference with kids. You know, as we talked about with athletics, you can make your kid do more athletics. So you can do that. But the question is, do you want to? You're not going to make much of a difference in the end, is what I would say. The first point is parents know they can make a difference. But does that make a difference in the long run in the way their kids turn out? So you can change their behavior. If a kid's being an obnoxious brat, you know, at, when you're over at someone else's house, you can put them on the quiet step or, you know, you can make them stop doing that behavior. If they're hitting their sister over the head, you can stop that behavior. Mm. But will you, will you change their personality in the long run? And that's what we're talking about here. Right, but I just want to stay with the strongest version of the other rather than your version, just for the moment. So, if you know, if we had, say, uh, Amy Chua here, you know, who wrote Tiger Mom, who's a professor of law at Yale, I mean, what's the strongest argument you believe she has for her view around sort of Confucianist child rearing techniques and that they work? What, what's what's her strongest argument? Do you think with enough effort? You can make a difference. If you're willing to put in that effort, you can make a difference. But what she doesn't acknowledge is genetics. What parents would do that? Mm. And who are those parents and what kind of kids would they have? I don't predict she would do so well with all kids. I mean, her kids are special and they're special like her, I think, genetically. So um, I think that is an important issue. And it's another thing about harmony, you know, she is obviously very controlling and wants to make the environment that she thinks will give her kids the best shot at developing. That's not true of all parents and not true of all kids. So I think harmony is important. I don't think it's chance that she and her kids, the system worked well. But I think for a lot of other parents and kids, I don't think it's going to work. And to give parents, what I don't like is it gives parents the, the idea that if they just worked hard enough, if they were trying hard enough with their kids, their kids would be brilliant. Right. And it isn't true. We've got to recognize differences, genetic differences between kids and respect them to a greater extent. Again, it doesn't mean you can't do anything. It's just I had one grandson of one of my three grandchildren had a, a birth sort of complication and was really quite slow in development and was really having trouble learning to read. Did that mean we just said, oh, well, kid can't read? No, it just means you know you have to put in a lot of effort. And it did. The parents, the grandparents, we put in a lot of effort to get the kid to read, and the kid's reading, you know, reasonably well now. So it's this difference between what you can do and what happens on average in the population over the long haul. Now, that, that that's, that's very helpful. If, if you start to consider your work both, I suppose, in terms of your conclusions or in terms of, you know, your research techniques, what are the two or three areas that worry you the most? Where where do you think your weakest areas are? 
uh, with respect to your your own your own work. Yeah, it's great that you guys ask these questions I, because it's true. I don't often think about this, but uh, um, I, I know for sure one of our biggest problems and current weaknesses is this missing heritability gap that Emil and I talked about. That um, what we can predict with these polygenic scores is a lot less than the heritability. Mm. But there's a lot of work being done to narrow that gap. So that will be uh, remedied in ways I could talk about. But that, for me, is the biggest single roadblock now, that some of these polygenic scores don't really explain much variance. So um, there's that. And I think another, another issue is, I thought, public understanding of the science. But I've been struck that there's very little hostility. You know, when my book came out, my friends thought this was like a suicide note because relevant to the topic, you know, charity, I, the first, part, first 30, 40 years of my career, I just kept my head down and I just did the research. And I hope that in the end, the science and the data would rule. And, you know, so I avoided a lot of the controversies that came out. But um, I am struck that nowadays, People don't seem to be upset about genetics. Really, this is a very controversial area. Um, I think of myself if, if, you know, when I was at university and and I would have heard you, I I may have been one of the proponents to get you off campus, right? Um, I think of Charles Murray and the controversy he's had around the bell curve. And whatever that is, I mean, he's, you know, he finds it hard to speak. And I'm wondering... Why haven't you been cancelled? Yeah, good question. I went. I gave a talk live at Cambridge, actually a couple, a couple during the last couple months. And because you know Cambridge, this is in England. Um, Cambridge had some some of these sorts of um, what do we call them, culture war issues or, or whatever. And so they designated my talk as potentially dangerous. And we had guards, and people had to sign up ahead for my talk. They had to show an ID before they could get into the talk. There was no problem. There was no protest. Questions were very good and interesting. I don't know why. I mean, sometimes I feel like, hey, what about me, you know? But part of the difference is I think that, I mean, Charles Murray sort of courts controversy. I mean, he says things in probably the most controversial ways possible. Whereas I don't want to just hit people over the head. You know, I want to make a difference. And I think you do that by being, you know, cautious and um, staying close to the data mm-hmm. and letting people know when you're going beyond the mm-hmm. data, you know, because as a scientist, I don't have any better values or ideas about policy than, than other people. So I don't, I, I really, I honestly don't know the answer to your question. Why don't I get canceled? Can, can I suggest that one possible reason, <laughs> because I've just been listening to you for the last hour with Emil. You know, I've listened to you on a range of other podcasts. And, I, you know, what I'm really struck about, uh, and when we talk about the principle of charity, we're often emphasizing it's not just about what you say but how you go about saying it. And, uh, I, you know, it strikes me that you've got this gentleness about you. You have this relaxed confidence about you. Uh, I mean, you are without question charming. We saw that at the prior, you know, before we were even starting this podcast. Um, do you think, I, I know it's hard for you to acknowledge this maybe, uh, particularly now that you live in England and, and the tall poppy syndrome is probably, you, you, you've now incorporated that. But do you think that makes a difference? Huh, it's a good good point. Um, I, I can't think of a better explanation. I mean, 
it's not put on. I mean, I, I am a fervent advocate of genetics. I think it has such important messages for people. So I'm not going to be hesitant to state that view strongly. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of the difference between do you want to get your yayas out, cathart, or do you want to make a difference? Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to make a difference, then I think you're more motivated to have decent Mm -hmm. conversations with people. Mm -hmm. However, I have learned there are some people you can't have decent conversations with. So up until the book came out, I kept my head down just by not engaging in controversy. People would attack me. I wouldn't respond. Because what I learned early on is that if I responded to every critic's comments, you could address them. Like they say, oh, MZ and DZ twins are treated differently. Well, you say, okay, now there's quite a bit of research on that. And you go through it and they say, yeah, okay. But what about this? I have better things to do. I want to get the research done. And I could spend my whole life, as some people have done, just responding to guys who I don't think are honest. What's what's the word? Not brokers, but honest. um, They're not honest in seeking information, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that's why I don't go on Twitter. I find it a cesspool. It's it's maybe a good lesson, I think, you know, around argument and focus. I, I suppose what I'm also hearing is that your intent is really scientific and you have a exactly a concern to do as best you can. And I think when people experience intent rather than ego, uh, they sometimes unconsciously or consciously give you the benefit of the doubt. And, and maybe that's one of the reasons you haven't been cancelled. Is they picking up your intent? Well, that would be nice to think that's true. <laughs> That's good. Well, let, let me go then to, to the alternative side. What has been the most difficult experience for you where people have been uncharitable? And what emerged for you? How did you cope with it? And how did you respond? And on reflection, sorry, lots of questions here, if, if you can remember them. On reflection, what do you think you could have done better in your response to them? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. I think, again, maybe personality difference, differences matter here. When I was in graduate school in the 70s, when psychology was so environmentalistic, you couldn't even talk about genetics. And and when I started doing um, research as an assistant professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder, I did an adoption study. And people said, are you nuts? You know, it was adoption study of cognitive development. (laughs) You know, they said that's a stupid thing to do. And it was very difficult to get it funded. But I knew from early on that um, I liked, when I was in graduate school, I knew I liked genetics research. I took this course in genetics, and it completely floored me. I said, wow, this is such powerful stuff. And compared to a lot of the crap I was reading in psychology, and yet the other students in the class didn't get taken with it. And I don't know why it appealed to me, but I also knew that I was kind of thick-skinned. And, you know, I was tough. I thought I could handle it. I didn't lose sleep over people hating me or you know, giving me a hard time for stuff, partly because I'm ornery, but also because I really felt deep down, it's right. I mean, Mm -hmm. how could psychology have ignored genetics for a century? Mm -hmm. And so I think all of those things helped me to deal with the uh, criticism I got. And very early on, it was uh, tough because uh, this grant I submitted to the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development I mean, almost got laughed out of court first time around, and I submitted it again. I had more and more big names, you know, involved in this, and and then it didn't get funded. Each of these goes are about a year, and I'm only an assistant professor with six years up and out for tenure, and then it finally did get funded just 
um, I've heard later, um, you know, it was almost capricious that it got funded the third time around. This is for the Colorado Adoption yes. Project. I, I was um, duly worried about, I actually wasn't that worried about it. I don't know why. I, I don't know. You know, we could get really psychoanalytic here and go back to Carl Rogers and unconditional love. You know, I think one thing that did make a difference with me and my parents is they, uh, they didn't go to university. Mm. We had no books in our house. Mm. They weren't academically oriented, mm. but they were always very clear that they'd love me no matter what. And they'd support me no matter what, as best they could. And somehow I think that did help me feel centered in my yeah, life, yeah. you know, and say, no matter how much, how much bad stuff happens. And I've had a lot of bad stuff happen to me. I had a wife who committed suicide after being paralyzed for two years following a bicycle accident, for example. And this is when I, my kids were young, you know, and somehow my work actually helped me get through that. I don't know if other people find that. But I think of my work as one center anchor in my life that's pretty constant, yeah. whereas a lot of the other stuff comes and goes. So I think that's helped me as well. God, we're getting very psychoanalytic well, well, here. I think, I mean, you really are demonstrating, you know, what, whether it's self-help or not, but I think the Angela Duckworth stuff on true grit, you know, that sort of deliberate passion, staying focused is, 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 is quite remarkable. And, you know, it sounds like you had remarkable parents as well who are, who are able to give you that unconditional love. Let me test a little bit about what your experience is with respect to scientific institutions, academic institutions at present. How much science is being restricted because of the zeitgeist around cancellation or even trolling or uh, people just fearful that, you know, their mental health will get messed up and is it worth it? Yeah. Is the pursuit of truth, is the pursuit of science really worth it when I have to weigh that up against a, possibly a miserable life? A lot of scientists like me want to do the science and they don't want to spend their time engaging in these culture war arguments, even to the point where some feel very bad about not standing up for colleagues who have been um, deplatformed and that sort of thing. And it does bother me. And I try to restrain myself as best I can, because if you can't have free discussions about anything in the university, I mean, what are they for? And yet universities almost seem to be more afraid of uh, free speech than a lot of other institutions. The bright side, though, is I was just at a conference, the Behavior Genetics Association conference, and I find scientists among themselves are just as free in discussing ideas mm. as I think mm. they ever were. Mm. But they are much more cautious about presenting their stuff outside. Like a lot of them are surprised that I'm giving all these public talks and talking on podcasts like yours because it really is sticking my head above the parapet. But as I say in my book, I've spent 50 years with my head below the parapet. And I thought, what have I got to lose now, really? I mean, I'm uncancelable, uh, uncancelable in a way because I don't care. I mean, you know, I've done a lot of research and I think it's important to get these messages out to people. And maybe it's fair enough if if I'm the tall poppy that gets hacked off or whatever. You know, you have massive recognition in the scientific community with your Lifetime Achievement Awards, your publications, your citations. But at a more popular level, do you think you should have more, more popularity than you do? I don't think I deserve the popularity. Because, you know, I thought my book Blueprint was about as low as I could go. The, my editor was always saying, no, you got to 
dumb that down. You got to make that simpler. And yet I know that most people consider it a very difficult book. Mm. Because of the four pages on parenting, I was encouraged and given a big advance to do a book on genetics and parenting. It is amazing to me of the thousands of books on parenting, you can hardly find anything about genetics. Whereas I think genetics is the most important thing parents need to know about parenting. So I really felt I should do it. I tried to do it. But to write a parenting book, you really have to write low level. You have to talk about, you know, when my kid was awake all night and threw up and, you know, you have to talk at that level. And I just can't, I can't do it. I'm not a good communicator. And so I'm not an ideal person to talk to the public, except at this kind of scientific level. Mm. Plus, I don't, I, I, I just kind of feel like we ought to be able to tell people what the science is. And I think the message is so compelling that many parents like Emil would say, wow, this really makes a difference in the way I parent and the way I think about my kids' development. And that's the level of impact I'd like to go for. I don't want to tell parents what to do. Let's maybe just turn popularity on its head. I mean, let's assume this scenario. It's 30 years' time, whatever that is, 2050. Robert Plowman is no longer celebrated, um, unlike he is today. So it's 30 years' time. You're no longer celebrated like you are today. What would be the three big reasons you no longer celebrate it, do you think, if you did a pre-mortem and a forecast? <laughs> It'd be a post-mortem because I'd be 104 years old then. <laughs> we'll do the pre-mortem now on the prediction. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just think it's so important for scientists not to get caught up in that game of popularity, awards, achievements, because they don't last. I find so many of my older colleagues, they're so concerned about getting credit for the things they did earlier. And, you know, I don't think getting credit, if it's not going to work for you in the long run. It's the science that's important. And you ought to just feel good that you've made some good discoveries, even if people don't credit you with mm-hmm. it. You know, you've advanced science. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're there as a scientist, that's what it ought to be about. If you're there as a celebrity. But what would be the reason you wouldn't be celebrated, do you think? We go through this every five or six years in England, where all the universities are evaluated. And you're evaluated on this of empirical contributions. Most of my highly cited papers can't get used in that ref because they're not just a straightforward empirical paper. They're, I think, so much more important. They're conceptual. I they're see. changing I the see. field. Mm-hmm. So they don't get counted, right? So that's one reason why I... Um, Celebrated is wrong, but you know I do get a lot of citations from my research. Yes. But that would be that would be a potential reason going forward. When you were talking about you know that section in your book and in the conversation with Emil, you know it strikes me that some of your work must be such a relief for many people, and particularly around you know the concept of shame, because if, if you differentiate between shame, which is really a sense of negative self because you're afraid of what people think about you and guilt, which is, you know, negative feelings about what you've done. So much of mental health issues are are linked to feeling that sense of shame or feeling an inferiority. And what has been some of your, you know, the effects of your work? I mean, do you know the effects of your work that, I mean, are, are people in correspondence? Are they are they in recognition and saying, thank you, this, this has helped me? Yeah, especially on the parents in terms of their children. 
which is kind of easier to see in a way. But the same issues apply to us in some ways. You know, it suggests that we need to give ourselves a break too. And we can't all put ourselves on that Facebook, social media pedestal of beautiful lives and everything being wonderful. You know, we got to realize that we have genetic strengths and weaknesses. And, and I think that's part of understanding who we are, not just understanding who our children are. And I think, as you're saying, to feel less guilt and shame about who we are. I mean, if you do something bad to someone, you, you know, you should feel bad about that, right? I mean, you yeah, know, that would be guilt. You, you need, yes. Yeah. And, you know, fair enough. But characterological sorts of things, um, I think um, we really need to recognize that a lot of who we are is genetic. And not not to say we can't do anything about it, but just to recognize that some things are more difficult for us or easier for us than they are for other people. Right. What I'd love to do is just around your work, if you don't mind and if you're up for it, is to do sort of this game uh, that I think Tyler Cowan does on his podcast, but I'd like to do it around you, if you don't mind, and that's underrated versus overrated. And with respect to underrated versus overrated around your work, if, if you could just make a comment, the psychoanalytical community, do they underrate or overrate your work? They don't know about it. They don't know about it. So, okay. <laughs> okay. Let's, self-help gurus, Tony Robbins. I never hear them talk about genetics, so I guess they definitely underrate the work. Catholic Church? I grew up a Catholic, and I don't think they talk about genetic differences between people either. I mean, it's actually, come think about it, it's sort of an environmentalistic uh, view of the world, but definitely underrated. Google and their artificial intelligence units? And components. Given that Google searches are so much around citations and bibliometric things, I think they um, rate my work appropriately. Conservatives? <laughs> There's this thing that people think conservatives are, uh, genetics is sort of a right-wing thing, and I really don't think so. I mean, of the people I know in genetics, it's pretty much the uh, a pretty representative distribution of uh, attitudes in academia, which is very much more on the left side of center on average, I would say. And, you know, I think it's the fundamental principle of individuality in a way. You could, you know, um, Catherine Page Harden has a book that came out last year called The Genetic Lottery. And she really talks about these issues of social justice and how you can have a very left-wing perspective and still accept genetics. And that no matter what political perspective you have to deny genetics, it's just not a wise idea because genetics is so important. Last question. You have achieved amazing things in your research uh, career. What do you think differentiates you uh, either genetically uh, or from an environmental point of view that has just allowed you to be, you know, in that 1% of, of great achievers in, in, in your sphere? Well, that's Nice of you to say so. I think I have thought a bit about this. And, you know, I do work very hard. I, I don't really think I'm so brilliant, but I do work very hard. And I try to keep focused on my work. And I work a lot. You know, in the absence of other things to do, I work. I do try to notice when there are interesting alternatives suggested. You know, like I'm in Norfolk now, my house in Norfolk near the sea. So I go swimming most every morning, except this morning, because I'm doing the podcast, but then I sail quite a bit as well. So I do try to take time off, but 
But basically, I, I work hard because I like to do what I'm doing. I'm not, and increasingly now, like I'm working on a paper now about the future of genomics and psychology, and it's extremely difficult. And it's taking me like five times longer than I thought it would. But I'm sort of at a point now where I say, that's great. I mean, this, these are really problems to grapple with. I'm not just regurgitating stuff I've written before. And so I'm trying to enjoy it too, and not just trying to produce, you know? Definitely, um, I'm cons- I've always been thinking about quality rather than quantity, not just churning out papers, mm-hmm. but try to, for me, the most exciting thing is finding some big finding that replicates and will really make a difference in the field, like this non-shared environment or um, everything is heritable and um, the nature of nurture. I guess it's just, I find it fun, you know, and you know, you want to do something. I think I do this even if I weren't, I know I do it, even if I weren't paid to do yeah. it. I just love doing yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Has anybody that you know of used your work for really, I would say negative or pernicious uh, purposes? I can't think of a, an individual person. You know, I don't like it when, Genetics is not my work in particular, but just genetics in general is hijacked for either, well, for typically right wing sorts of purposes. But, you know, I don't even think that happens that much. Do you know? I think um, people have their views and maybe they'll nod to science if they think it supports what they're doing. But I don't think the science really drives much of those sorts of policy uh, implications. So I'm afraid I can't really think of any good single example in which people have misused this work. So I'm sorry, I can't really answer that one very well. No, that's a good, that's a good answer. That's a fantastic, that's a fantastic answer. I'd like to say just how much I appreciate doing this. It was a great interview and a lot of questions I've never been asked before, but I just think the idea of the charity podcast is such a good thing. You know, um, we almost talk flippantly about, well, being canceled. But, you know, that's abhorrent, yes, isn't it, yes. in, in a university world? We ought to be able to discuss things. And so I think podcasts like yours, um, especially yours, are, are really important to let people know that you can disagree about things, but you don't have to be disagreeable. Yeah, <laughs> That's a great way to finish. Thank you, Robert. It's, uh, you know, having, lending your voice to, to what we're trying to do on the podcast is just a huge um, vote of confidence in in the purpose of the principle of charity. And more importantly, just to have this conversation and learn so much about the power of genetics. You know, there is one thing that I think is worth mentioning about genetics, not to take us back to the beginning, but I just want to make sure the listeners realize this because I was nervous when we talk about genetics being in, inheritable and the power of it that we could end up in these genetic silos. And something you say in your book, which is worth mentioning, is that because only 50% gets passed on from any one parent and over generations, in a sense, the genetic power um, reduces. So, so you know, if you've got two incredibly smart parents, it doesn't necessarily mean that ongoing you end up with these genetically, um, intellectually superior children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, there is a reversion to the mean. And so in a weird way, genetics is powerful, but it's also fairer um, than, than many of the environmental forms of privilege that, that we focus on. I think it's just a nice, yeah, interesting... You, it, um, and the, other, the flip side of that's also interesting, that 
bright parents are likely to have children who are brighter than average, but that's bright, less bright than them, as you said, this regression yes. to the mean. But the flip side of that's interesting is that most of the brightest people in the next generation won't come from those brightest parents because they have relatively few kids. It's a normal distribution. And if they're way at the extreme, there's very few of them. Most of the brightest people are going to come from parents in the middle of the distribution. And somehow that that appeals to me a lot. Yes. Well, that's a tricky, that goes back to that point of it doesn't predict for any individual. There is a bell curve of distribution. And so it's an incredibly powerful tool but something we don't need to be too scared of, we can use to help us sort of um, lead the best lives. So thank you so much for, for joining us and for being part of this. Thanks, Robert. Terrific. Really nice talking to you guys. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. That really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. See you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.